Our scripture lesson for this evening's sermon is in Exodus chapter 20 as we continue this series through a survey through the Ten Commandments. We come to Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 through 6 today which covers the second commandment. This is the word of God. As he spoke to the people of Israel from Mount Sinai, and as Moses then recorded faithfully and without error, and so we know that we have the very word of the true God, as we read Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me, and keep my commandments." And thus ends the reading of God's word for us this evening. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of the Lord. When I began this series on the Ten Commandments, the brief covering of these Ten Commandments last Sabbath, I pointed out the importance of understanding that we do not earn our way to heaven by keeping God's commandments. And we noted, and I'll note again probably several times through this series, that uh, that's demonstrated simply by the history that's recorded in the book of Exodus. Because God did not speak to the people of Israel while they were in the land of Goshen and and say, here are my ten commandments, keep them, and I will then rescue you from your slavery. Rather, he kept his word, his covenant with Abraham, He sent Moses and called the people to uh, out of, or to freedom, I should say, out of slavery, out of bondage, commanded Pharaoh to let his people go. And once, after he proved by a mighty hand that it was his work, through the ten plagues upon Egypt, he brought Israel out as he had promised and brought them to the mountain where he had spoken to Moses and then declared these commandments to them. And so we learn from that illustration from history that these commandments are not for us to earn our own salvation by, but rather for us to serve the Lord who has saved his people. We would have to keep these commandments, we would have to keep God's moral law perfectly if we were to earn our own salvation by it. In fact, if we could do that, we wouldn't need saving. We would already be in perfect covenant relationship with the Lord. But of course, all of us are sinners. All of us have violated these commandments. So rather than that, God didn't give the moral law as some kind of tease to hang before us and say, uh, here you can have it. I remember uh, maybe when I was a child, my older brother, six years older than I, uh, and he, so he was quite a bit bigger, and he might once in a while hold a ball or something in front of me that he thought I wanted, and then as I would reach for it, what would he do? He'd lift it up way up high where I couldn't reach it. 
And that's not what God is doing to us. He's not dangling this before us as some kind of dainty that, that we could reach for and he'll snatch away to say, oh, you could save yourself, but no. Rather, he gave the moral law, summarized in these Ten Commandments, uh, to serve three main purposes. And we'll hear of these several times in this series as well. But number one, it serves as a mirror, so to speak, to show us our need for a Savior, to show us how dirty and ugly and unfit for God's presence our sins make us. They teach us that we are sinners. They show us that in our inherent sinfulness and depravity, we are incapable of meeting God's righteous standard. As Paul says in Romans 7, when we learn the law, sin within us just uses it as an opportunity. It gives our sinful nature ideas for sins. And we read about some sin in the law of God, and and our flesh says, that sounds like fun. And if we're properly examining ourselves, we'll recognize that. And if we're looking at ourselves in the mirror of God's law, we will see, yes, indeed, I have broken that law. I am a sinner, and I cannot stand as holy before God. Indeed, as Isaiah says, if I try to to earn my own salvation, my righteousness is as filthy rags. I'm not properly dressed for the presence of God. Which means if we are to have fellowship with the Lord, there has to be some kind of atonement made by a Savior who can stand in our place paying the penalty for our sins because he had none of his own and imputing then his perfect righteousness to us. And so the law drives us to the understanding that we need a Savior. And especially as we couple it with all of the ceremonial laws that God gave in the Old Testament that show us what his righteousness demands of the sinner through the sacrificial system, we know we need a sinless substitute. So that's the first use of the law. It serves as a mirror. It shows us that we're sinners. The second use is the moral law gives us gives those saved, those who have recognized their need for a Savior and leaned totally upon God. And now we have the full revelation of this in Christ Jesus, and so we know he's paid the penalty. So those who are saved in Christ Jesus through faith in him, it gives them a means by which to thank God and to grow more Christ-like. To give God's servants a way to show God that they love him for the salvation they have received If I want to show how grateful I am for being saved from my sins once I've seen how sinful I am when I compare myself to the law of God, and then I see that I have a Savior in God through Christ Jesus, if I want to show that my gratitude, what am I going to do? I'm going to look at God's moral law and see the things that he loves and see the things that he hates. And I'm going to endeavor to do the things that he loves and I'm going to flee from the things that he hates. I can look to the moral law to learn how to live in a way that glorifies and pleases my Savior. There's a third use of the law we won't spend as much time on in this series, but it, the law actually also helps keep even the reprobate from being as bad as they could be. That is, even people who will never be saved will never trust in Jesus Christ if they are aware of God's moral law, if they know the Ten Commandments, for example, they might live an otherwise better life than they would have. This is one reason why it's perfectly appropriate that the Ten Commandments would be 
displayed in public places. I've heard uh, Christians say, oh, we don't need to have the Ten Commandments in courthouses and things like that. Uh, the Ten Commandments are just for God's people. Well, no, the Ten Commandments reflect God's moral character. They are for all people. All people are called to obey, and all people are guilty for not obeying them. But if we display them publicly, if we let people know what the Ten Commandments are, what God's basic moral commandments are, then it does cause even some very unrighteous people to be less evil than they would have been. They're not going to save themselves by keeping the commandments, but God does this mercifully in his common grace to make less trouble for the world, to make it a better world for his people to live in. It's mainly the first two uses I mentioned here that we're going to be concerned in this series, but that third use is something that we can be aware of. Well, first, this evening, let's look at the second commandment and its meaning. In verses 4 through 6 of Exodus 20, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, several things need to be noted about this commandment. First of all, it says you'll not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness then of the things which are in heaven, which are then on earth or in, it says, the water under the earth. So nothing in heaven or earth or beneath the earth or in the seas. We're not to make any likeness of these things. Now the commandment doesn't stop there. It says you shall not bow down. So soon after this, God is going to command the making of carved images. And so we know that what this is not saying is that any artwork is forbidden. But Because after this, God will command the making of carved images of cherubim, that's creatures in heaven, right? And also bulls, eventually, uh, in the days of Solomon. Bulls that will uphold the great sea, the great uh, water container in the court of the temple. But God, very soon after this, is going to command Moses to make carved images of cherubim that are going to be on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. But one thing to note is that God says you shall not make for yourself a carved image. These are not made for ourselves. If we had been among the Israelites then, we would not have been making these for ourselves, but for the Lord. Later there will be images of cherubim and bulls and plants in Solomon's temple. Those were fine because God commanded them to be made and they were made for him. But also we see that not all artwork, therefore, is forbidden. Because the key to understanding this, it's our second point here, is the statement, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Artwork is not forbidden. We in the Reformed tradition have historically de-emphasized 
artwork in the place of worship. Uh, not because we believe that all art is idolatry, but because visual stimuli tend to distract one from hearing the word, and faith comes by hearing, Paul says in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. In the uh, Roman church, in the medieval church, they would often say was they filled the worship places with images of biblical figures and so on. They would say, well, the images are the scriptures of the illiterate. Well, one way to solve that is teach people to read, right? <laughs> but the other thing to note is that the Bible never says faith comes by seeing. Faith comes by hearing. So even the illiterate can hear the word preached. There's always this danger of encouraging idolatry. Idolatry is a very basic human tendency in our fallen state. Idolatry in the most direct sense occurs when, of course, a person bows down or serves. Uh, Both words can be translated as worship. When they bow down or serve an image, a painting, a carving, Isaiah pokes fun at uh, the people who would would cut down a tree and carve it into an idol to bow down before and use the rest to make their bread. But here we we see that, that kind of crass idolatry where you make an image of silver or gold or wood or stone and you bow down or paint Right? And you bow down and you worship it as if it is the God or the being that it represents. If a prayer or a sacrifice is directed to a statue or a painting or a carving, as if it's the object of worship or, or the focus through which we access God, it is idolatry. So many people who have bowed down and prayed to a statue of Mary or a saint will tell you, I don't believe the statue is Mary, it's just a focus for my worship. Well, let's put aside the fact that we're not to worship anyone but God. We saw that last time. So that would be violating the first commandment when people pray to Mary and things like that. Even when it's a statue of Jesus, whom we should worship, who is God, being used. If it's a statue of Christ or a painting of Christ, the pagans of old would say the very same thing. The people that Isaiah made fun of, right? The people that the prophets poked fun at for... Uh, for bowing down to an image that they made themselves and then used the rest of the wood to bake their bread. And we sing in our psalms about that, the dumb idols that cannot speak, they cannot see, they have eyes they can't see, ears they can't hear, mouths they can't speak. But even if it's a statue of Jesus, those, those same people who worshipped those images, would have said, well, we're not literally worshipping the image. We're worshipping a God that the image stands for, and the image is just an aid in our focus for our worship. They would say their idols were not literally their gods, they were just a focus for their worship. Well, this is expressly forbidden. 
So even we can't use the excuse that, well, that crucifix, that image of Jesus is not really Jesus. It's just a way to focus my thoughts upon Jesus. Another problem that we add to that is the fact that, as our testimony tells us, uh, reminds us, the Bible doesn't actually give us a physical description of Jesus. We don't know what he looks like. But having an image is expressly forbidden. Uh, There were times in the history of Israel when people made an idol and said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. So they may have intended to be worshiping the Lord, but they were worshiping him by an image, and he is the unseen God. A third thing to note is even when an image is sanctioned by God, if it's misused, it can become an idol and needs to be gotten rid of. In their time in the wilderness, the Israelites were plagued by poisonous serpents, the fiery flying serpents, as they were called. And God instructed Moses to make a bronze image of a serpent and to place it up high on a pole in the middle of the camp. And anyone who was bitten by one of these venomous serpents was to look at the bronze serpent, at the brazen serpent, in faith in the Lord's promise that if they looked upon it, that they would be healed and they were healed. This, of course, foreshadows Christ on the cross. As Jesus says, just as the serpent was lifted in the wilderness, as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. He's speaking of his crucifixion there in particular, but we know that if we look on Christ, who died for our sins in faith, then we too are saved. Just as those who were bitten by the snakes were saved when they looked on the bronze serpent. But centuries later, in the promised land, the people began to worship the image. They called it Nehushtan, which is a, a sort of a, a grander version of the word for a serpent. But they, were, they gave it the name, the serpent, as if it were the serpent god or something like that. And they were worshiping it. They worshiped the image itself. And so here was an image sanctioned, commanded by the Lord, and it became an idol. And what did righteous King Hezekiah have to do when he was reforming the worship of Israel and bringing it back to what God had commanded? Just as he reformed the worship of the temple and did all the things that God commanded and got them back to to, uh, doing the things that they were supposed to do, here when it came to this bronze serpent, Today people would gasp at the notion that somebody would do such a thing. You take this priceless artifact from the history of God's people, and what did he do? He ground it to dust. It is better to grind the priceless artifact to dust than to worship it. Jesus is the image of God in the flesh. and So some argue it isn't necessarily wrong to have an image of him or maybe an image of an angel in their home, but if you think having a painting of Jesus or an angel uh, figurine uh, makes you a godly person or brings blessings to your home, well, now you're committing idolatry, absolutely. But I would just avoid images of Jesus altogether. We have to definitely avoid attributing any power to these images, but as our testimony notes, as I already said, we don't even know what Jesus actually looked like, so how can you make an image of him? And if you want to find something that is an image of God in the way Christ was an image of God, well, look at the people around you. 
Everyone is made in the image of God. Don't bow down and worship that image, but honor it as the image of God it was. Jesus is simply the perfect image of God because he was sinless. And the image of God is broken in us because of our sin. If we were supposed to, if it was appropriate to make images of Jesus, even if we aren't bowing down and worshiping the images, if it were appropriate, I think the Bible would actually have described him to us so that we would know what we were doing when we made an image. Tell us how long his hair was, and how, uh, how, uh, what its color was, what the tint of his hair was. How dark was his skin? We don't even know these things. We can guess... The earliest depictions of Jesus look very little like the ones that you commonly see today, uh, but they were still centuries too late to to have known what he looked like. The, one of the earliest images that we think is of Christ, I believe, was in a, a mosaic uh, on a floor in a Roman villa in England, what's now England. And uh, it depicts somebody who looks kind of like a Jew from that part of the world might you might expect look, and he had kind of curly, dark hair, and it was short. I, my theory, my hypothesis on why all the all these images we see of Jesus today have long hair uh, is uh, a combination of a misunderstanding that he, he was a Nazarene, mixing that up with a Nazarite, because Nazarites didn't cut their hair for the time of their vow, and then also the fact that in early medieval Europe, uh, the great dynasties, especially the Merovingian dynasty, this dynasty that ruled what the nation that would become France. They actually created France. They were the kings of the Franks. And they uh, marked off royalty by having long hair. You had to be royal. A man had to be royal to have long hair. Had to be of the royal family. And sometimes when a man was being removed by some of his relatives, somebody else was going to take the throne from him. They were going to remove a king. What they do, they'd cut all his hair off and stick him in a monastery. And so this notion that royalty has long hair and Jesus is a king, therefore, let's paint Jesus with long hair. I think that's probably where that came from. Well, we really don't know what Jesus looked like, how long his hair was, or anything. The fourth thing to be concerned about, though, is that serving something else as God makes God angry, as we noted last time, as our holy creator. He is rightfully jealous for his name. So he says, here, you're not going to bow down and worship these images. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That is, it's wrong for us to attribute to something or someone else, the glory that belongs to God alone. And when we make images to bow down before, we're taking glory away from the invisible God and giving it to a visible object. The consequences of idolatry are so serious that people experience them for three or four generations of those who reject the Lord, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now God isn't saying there that he punishes children for their parents' sins. He's saying that this, uh, this tendency to idolatry gets passed from child, from parent to child, and so on. And the Lord visits that iniquity upon them. He makes plain in the prophets that he does not punish children for the sins of their parents, but for their own sins. 
But notice the abundance of mercy that follows that. Where he says, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who, keep, who love me and keep my commandments. The, that means thousands of generations. We reap benefits from generation to generation for faithfulness. God, God's blessings carry over for thousands of generations. To summarize the principle we draw from the second commandment is that we are to worship God in the ways that he says we should worship him and not make for ourselves any of our own ways to worship. Making a crass idol is just the most obvious way to do that. We're forbidden to worship God by images or any other means not appointed in his word as our confessional standards say. In Romans 1, Paul explained that fallen humanity's basic tendency is toward idolatry. That is, by our very nature, we make gods for ourselves. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the invisible God for things that they could make, visible things they made. And they made all kinds of images in the forms of men and animals. Rather than accepting the true God for who he is as he reveals himself to be. Being made in God's image but rejecting the true creator in whose image we're made, sinners tend to replace him with something else. Because we were made to worship God, and that's in our very basic nature, but because we reject God in our sin, what do we do? We, we don't just stop worshiping things altogether. We make something else to worship. We have a basic drive to worship, but we refuse to worship the holy God, and therefore we replace him with something else. Apart from grace whereby God changes our hearts and teaches us to seek him, we worship false gods. Many in history have blatantly worshipped idols made by human hands and violated this commandment in the most crass sense, the most obvious sense. Today, Hinduism and Wiccanism and Shamanism and Neo-Paganism and multiple of so-called indigenous religions are rife with that kind of open idolatry. Even those professing Christians who direct their prayers to statues or paintings of Christ violate this commandment. The Eastern Orthodox churches are probably the worst in, in that vein because they teach that an image of a saint has actually a part of the saint's spirit in it. So the statue or painting, actually would be a painting in their case because they don't make statues, but the icons, the paintings, are literally the saint in a sense. And in the Roman church, they don't teach that quite exactly that, in, in, to that extreme, though quite often they talk about the statues as if they are the saint they represent. But there's a more subtle way in which people commonly violate this commandment, and it's more insidious than just having a statue and bowing down to it or a painting and worshiping it. We're prone to creating an idea of, we want, of what we want God to be like. We tend to create an idea of what we would prefer God to be like, and we try to force the real God into that image. Have you ever heard someone reject biblical teaching? I used the example last week of somebody who says, my God would never condemn anyone to hell. No God of mine would require his son to go to a cross. Well, now you're just making another God then. 
That's idolatry as surely as carving a statue or bowing down to it is. Refusing to accept that God is the way he says he is in Scripture, in any other way, is just making another God for ourselves. And we all have to be on our toes about that kind of thing. John Calvin pointed out that the fallen human heart is a factory of idols. It's often said, if you read it in a book, it'll say it's an idol factory, but I know in today's English we might mishear that and think it's I-D-L-E, factory. It's a factory that's not working right now, uh, but it's an I-D-O-L, factory. Our heart is a factory that makes idols. We're constantly imagining who we think God ought to be rather than accepting who he says he is, and we're all prone to this. I had a seminary professor... As you know, I went to a liberal seminary. Uh, I had a seminary professor who wrote a book entitled Reimagining God. The implication is that the writers of the Bible imagined God in certain ways, and Christians in the past imagined God in certain ways, but we in our more enlightened and intelligent age ought now to reimagine who God is. But scripture, which is of course validated as from God by the miracles of those who wrote and endorsed it, is not just some people's imagining of who God is. It's God's own revelation of himself to his people. It's God saying, this is who I am. So we should shun any attempt to imagine God apart from his revealed word his self-revelation in written word and most fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, shows us who God really is. To imagine God apart from that revelation is to make an idol, to create a God for ourselves, a false God. To some extent we have all done this, of course, because we always have an ever-changing image of God in a sense in our mind, because as we grow in our knowledge of God, but when we blatantly go against what God creates or what God reveals himself to be in Scripture, we're, we're engaging in idolatry. We have imagined God as we would prefer him rather than the way he says he is. When we do that, we're committing idolatry. But thanks be to God, we have a Savior who is the perfect image of God and who has borne our sins on the cross having been saved from God's righteous wrath and our idolatry by his grace, working through faith in Jesus Christ, our response then should be to look to this and the other commandments that reflect God's moral character and put away all idols from our lives and to submit to who God says he is and do these commandments, not to reimagine him, but to know him for who he truly is and worship him for who he truly is is. Well, let's pray. Our most holy God, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, both in the written word of scripture and most fully in the word incarnate, Christ Jesus. We pray that you would keep us faithful to worship you for who you really are and not for who we imagine you to be. For we pray in the name of the one who showed us who you are so perfectly and so grandly. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.